0: Ladies and gentlemen, this episode of the Open Guard Cast is brought to you by Electrum Performance. Speaking of Electrum Performance, <laughs> my name is Jake Watson, and I'm joined by Danny O'Donnell and Alex Bryce. C-S-C-S-D. What is D? What is the D in C-S-C-S?
1: It is with distinction. Um, with distinction. So, yeah, so I have uh, um, accrued extra CEUs or continuing education units uh, to be able to earn the uh, specific distinction.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. That's very impressive. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're super excited. You know, we, uh, w- at the beginning and end of every episode, we always mention, uh, election performance and it's really exciting to have you on. We had Alex Turner on in our fourth episode, yes, I believe it was. Fourth episode. And, uh, even in the little bit of workouts I've been doing with election performance, man, I feel a gigantic improvement in my strength. So thank you for coming on.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me
0: guys. As always, uh, I know the last two weeks we didn't have a guest because uh, well we did it was me, <laughs> Just um, it was actually Danny, but uh, now we have a guest and you know Danny is a smart guy that is a journalist and I'm gonna let Danny take away the first question. I definitely have some questions on my own, but we definitely want to uh, get started. So Danny,
2: so do you just want to start out by uh, talking about like how you got into strength and conditioning and then how you got into jujitsu as well?
1: Sure, yeah. So I'll give a little boilerplate. Um, you know, to be honest, I've been kind of obsessed with. Uh, strength uh, and you know, the human body and what it's capable of, as long as I can remember. Um, I think the average uh, college student changes their major like four or five times or something. And if I could have declared at five years old, I probably would have. Um, I remember the the first uh, job I told my mom I wanted. I was, you know, a little kid, maybe three years old. And I remember I specifically phrased it this way. I said I wanted to be a police officer because police officers get big muscles. And, uh, <laughs> And so, you know, um, sports was a, a huge part of my life and my family growing up. Um, I mostly played ball sports. Uh, my big passion um, as a as a kid was baseball, uh, but strength and conditioning was always kind of uh, lurking in the background. And as soon as I felt old enough, I uh, immediately hopped into the weight room. Um, uh, Alex Turner and I uh, went to a school together at UConn, um, where uh, I majored in strength and conditioning. And uh, we interned in uh, the collegiate weight rooms there. I was really involved in the kinesiology um, uh, labs as well. Um, had a thesis project, uh, all, all that good stuff. Then wound up uh, getting my master's in exercise science from University of Kansas. Um, so, you know, that's always really been uh, a big focus of mine. I've wanted to, to be a coach and educator uh, from as early as I can remember. The vast majority of my family are teachers. My mom was a teacher, my brother, his wife. Uh, and so I oftentimes feel like uh, instead of a classroom, I have a weight room, but it's uh, a very similar uh, kind of experience or approach. I didn't really uh, get into grappling or in particular jujitsu until I met Sterner. Um, I had been kind of burned out from baseball and ball sports and had always been interested in wrestling. Our high school had a good wrestling team. I will freely admit I was a little self-conscious to wear a singlet. Um, It was also (laughs) uh, during basketball season and had a couple of MRSA outbreaks uh, and ringworm that kind of scared me away. But if I could do it over again, I certainly uh, think would have started from a younger age. I, um, I had no idea how much I would enjoy it until uh, I was introduced to it in uh, kind of Sterner's basement um, on some little rinky-dink mats and, and kind of fell in love right away.
0: That's awesome. So uh, for, for those who don't know what kinesiology is, and myself, I will admit, I'm not really actually sure what kinesiology is. I don't really know how to ask for you to give me like maybe just like a crash course explanation of what kinesiology, what is kinesiology and what is the study of it?
1: The simplest layman term I could give would be the study of human movement. Um, And so, uh, you know, sort of large, big umbrella is sort of, you know,
2: uh,
1: what is our, what are our bodies capable of uh, from a performance standpoint? Okay. And, um, you know, it's easy to get lost in jargon, right? Any industry has terminology that's meant to confuse outsiders, uh, and exercise science or the fitness industry is no exception.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, because I've seen kinesiology tape. And I was like, okay, so people put that on because maybe their shoulder's hurting and they want to keep it so they can retain their range of motion, correct? It would be awfully nice
1: if it worked that way. Uh, (laughs) um, So no, (laughs) okay. There are are certifications for K-taping. There are uh, athletic trainers or physical therapists who are certified and and can provide uh, a marginal benefit using uh, the tape, but that's a little bit of a slippery slope because oftentimes do we not only see a placebo effect with uh, some of the K-taping, but even a nocebo effect of then reduced performance without the tape where it starts to become a little bit of a crutch in some ways. That's not to say it has no benefit um but uh that's a little bit of a almost a confusing confusing misnomer i don't love the fact that that's referred to as like kinesiotape because it can lead to some uh,
2: confusion like that
0: okay it's very interesting right.
2: so you mentioned that you got into grappling and jiu jitsu through alex turner so once you once you were introduced to it was there anything specific about grappling and jiu jitsu that kind of made you want to help those athletes
1: um i was i was really struck by the skill cap, uh, you know, because there really isn't one. And, uh, to be able to kind of get into the ground floor of a, a very new and young sport, uh, was very exciting to me. And, um, I think the, the kind of description of jujitsu being sort of human chess, uh, feels accurate. Um, you know, the, the cerebral and mental part of it, uh, was something that really, really attracted me. Um, I'm very ticklish and I'm not a huge fan of, you know, lots of I'm not a very touchy feely person uh and was a little hesitant with that at first but yeah it's really uh you know it's really not a problem and just the way that you can interact with both the surface of the gi and another person's body is just fascinating Mm -hmm. uh and uh to to see a sport in its infancy that really didn't have much in the way of the support structure that you see in these multi-billion dollar sports like baseball, basketball, football. uh, We felt like it was an opportunity to really grow with the sport and and change it and improve it for the better.
0: Yeah, it's not it's not as tickly. I guess you're not as ticklish when like it's like threatening, right? Yeah, not really a concern when I'm getting choked. Yeah, right. Imagine (laughs) if if it was a little more friendly, especially like autos man like everybody's a killer down there
1: i wouldn't think that ronaldo was gonna tickle me i'd be, <laughs> <that'd> be <laughs> like no that dude's gonna kill me he's rip my face off although there was one time where uh, connor took my back and then gave me a wet willy
2: oh um, man he's that the is... kind of guy that would do that
1: though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> connor definitely connor
0: deangelis shout out to connor well on one of our episodes as well definitely seems like the kind of guy that would give you a wet willy in the middle of a match <laughs> yeah felt about
2: right So one of the things you mentioned, and, uh, it's kind of a common narrative in jujitsu is that the strength and conditioning methodologies are kind of lagging behind other sports. And you kind of alluded to the fact that it was because of like the money in other sports, but, um, would you agree with that? Was, is jujitsu way behind all the other sports, all the other athletes that you worked with?
1: I think way behind is a little unfair. Um, it's new, it's a new sport. If we're looking at it in terms of its actual competitive history, we're in its infancy. Uh, um, I don't want to use too many ball sport uh, examples, but, uh, you know, baseball being, you know, the big uh, passion of mine when I was a kid. You know, they've been playing baseball professionally since 1869. So, uh, you know, there's just so much more history and so much more established uh, understanding or meta or uh, and then, yes, of course, the money is going to uh, make a big impact there, Um, you know. It'd be very fascinating to check in again on jujitsu in 20, 30 years and really see where the sport has grown. And this is a natural progression that you see in many sports. Um, You know, around 40, 50 years ago, you were hearing in baseball, in golf, uh, many rotational sports in particular, um, but even basketball of, well, we don't wanna become muscle bound uh, or some of these other misnomers or misunderstandings regarding uh, strength and conditioning, or even uh, nutrition, health and wellness, Sports medicine, everything there has uh, exploded drastically within the last within our lifetimes, the last 20, 30 years. I mean, uh, I was watching The Last Dance, uh, the Michael Jordan uh, documentary. as um, Just about everybody else was. And it was fascinating. And even there, uh, when he entered the league in mid to late 80s, they're drinking beers after games. Uh, (laughs) It it was completely different approach or mindset. He even alludes to drug abuse. Uh, That was really well known in the 80s with cocaine. Uh, I know Sterner as a Mets fan uh, has some of that history. And uh, so this is a natural progression within any sport as it grows, evolves. The support structure, I guess we'll call it off of the mats, uh, continues to grow and evolve with it. And so it's going to be really fascinating to see how that evolves uh, over the next couple decades
0: yeah i think it's very interesting you brought that up because i mean we can it's definitely like what goes into jiu-jitsu is going to evolve but even like if you look back at just videos from like the like the late 90s early 2000s the geese were even bigger like we have different geese structure the rules like you look at the refs on the mat with like a backwards hat and levi jeans on they have, they have literally like you look at these yeah, videos of like the legends of our sport like Jacare versus hodger and the referee is just like hat backwards counting the points and the guys flipping over a card or writing it down it's crazy the The sport has come a long way but i
1: agree with you i think it's gonna it has so much farther to go it does but rather than looking at that as, as saying oh uh, we're behind the times i'm very excited to see the growth and progression
2: yeah for sure so you have a really awesome Instagram page. Um, you just post a lot of really informative stuff about strength and conditioning in and Jiu uh, Jitsu. And one of your posts was about goal setting and how it's important to have specific goals. And I think for Jiu Jitsu people, a lot of times it's just like, oh, I want to be stronger. I want to have like unbreakable grips. But um, your post was kind of saying that it's better to have like more specific weight room goals. So if you're a Jiu Jitsu athlete who's new to strength and conditioning and you're trying to come up with goals, like h- how do you feel like that should be approached? That's a great question. Um,
1: you know, I think that we can maybe make this general statement for just about any endeavor or task. Uh, strength training is no exception that the more quantitative, the more objective our goals are, the easier they are to obtain. And everybody comes to me and says, well, I want to get stronger or I want to look better in the mirror or I want to lose weight. Well, that's great. But how do you want to improve your back squat by 10 percent? Do you want to drop an inch and a half circumference on your waist? Do you want to lose 5% of your body weight? Do you want to reduce your mile time by a minute? And all of a sudden when we have answers like that, everything becomes significantly easier. It's hard to say there is one guaranteed, uh, goal that any BJJ practitioner should have. Um, there are a number that I think apply to just about everyone, but even something that I know you had alluded to or sent me a, a ahead of time is, uh, program design based on individual strengths and weaknesses and everybody's different. Uh, You know, we, uh, we talk, we like to use the term a needs analysis. What are the uh, general physiological requirements that we see for any particular sport, which we can establish pretty easily. I mean, I don't, I never played tennis, I don't really know much about it, but from an outside perspective, I could certainly uh, establish a needs analysis if a a professional tennis player or even an amateur came to me and said, you know, I wanna be able to improve my sport performance. And uh, jujitsu is no different in that regard. We can see certain sort of athletic bins that's important to be able to fill, whether we'd like to use the kind of umbrella term fight economy um, to sort of uh, define the maximum output for the minimum sort of physical input. because, you know, so often if you roll with, uh, you know, with a top level uh, competitor, they're just making you work harder than you want to. And if we can maximize that through relative strength, through aerobic capabilities, through anaerobic power, uh, through um, relative strength, then we're able to you know improve sport performance. But some people may inherently have. Uh, some of those bins already full or significantly more empty. So I'll give you specific examples. For myself, um, especially when I was living in Kansas, I was really just into powerlifting. Um, I got up to around 275 pounds. I got out of breath going up the stairs. And so my absolute strength was very good. But my relative strength, my aerobic base, some of the variables that we really see in jujitsu success were very much lacking. Whereas we may see someone in a lower weight class uh, who's never really uh, touched a barbell before and the goals or needs of that athlete compared to my own uh, physical profile are entirely different.
2: Yeah, okay. that makes sense. Um, I, I kind of have a follow up question on that. I'm going to try to word it the best I can. But like you said, you were like a power lifter. So you had a lot of absolute strength. Maybe like your aerobic base wasn't as high as you wanted it to be. Um, do you think it's more important to work on specific weaknesses? Or because some people say it's better to just amplify your strength, strengths, like focus on what you're good at, get really good at that. Obviously, you don't want to have like big gaping holes. But um, w- would you focus on someone's weaknesses first before trying to build up on their strengths?
1: I would say why choose if you don't have to. And uh, there are certain things that we know are going to be consistent based on, again, the needs analysis of the sport, right? The needs analysis Mm -hmm. of the sport versus the needs analysis of any one particular athlete. We know that things like local muscular endurance for grip uh, is really important uh, in jujitsu. There's very little research, very little peer-reviewed academic literature on jiu-jitsu. There's considerably more for judo, but we're talking apples to oranges. We can't look at that literature body and just make uh, absolute comparisons to BJJ. It's very different. And there are inherent challenges uh, in jiu-jitsu or grappling sports um, that make it much more challenging to quantitatively assess versus something like, again, we'll fall back to baseball, right? We have certain skills there throwing, hitting, or even within striking sports, within Muay Thai or boxing, we have consistent uh, motions or movements that are repeated over and over and over again. In jiu-jitsu, that could be wildly different based on are you a top player, are you a bottom player? What's your weight class? Uh, One person's weight or suite may look entirely different from another's and even the body proportions of your opponent can even change how you're executing the movement. So there's very little research that we can go off of to be able to truly get into some of the biomechanics or some of the absolute weaknesses of some of our jiu-jitsu athletes. I would love to be able to say, well, there's an expected amount of T-spine extension or shoulder external rotation or hip flexion that is absolutely necessary for a jiu-jitsu athlete and you are weak here, here, and here. I simply can't do that right now, even if I wanted to. There isn't enough data. But we can see that things like uh, so, there are a couple different studies that look at the difference between white belts, black belts, or you know, inexperienced and experienced competitors. And can we see some differences? Are there certain physical characteristics that are predictive of belt level or ability level? And there are. There are a couple. Really, the only ones that we have to go off of are in general. Um, brown and black belts are a little bit more mobile than their lower uh, their lower uh, belt counterparts. Not a lot. Flexibility helps in jiu-jitsu, but you actually, absolutely do not have to be super mobile. Um, Professor Andre Galvao is a great example. Um, not going to shock you with his sit and reach test. Um, we also see that uh, top-level competitors have a greater grip endurance, not necessarily maximal grip strength, but a greater grip endurance. Uh, like, uh, for example, like can you maintain? how long can you maintain 75% of your max grip strength uh, type of thing? Uh, jiu-jitsu competitors will typically outperform the general population there. Um, But we don't actually see a massive difference in uh, explosive uh, or power ability. You know, we would always think of, oh, uh, someone like Bushesho or Muhammad Ali are the exception, Um, not necessarily the norm that we see within jiu-jitsu competitors. Again, being explosive, being powerful helps, but is it absolutely necessary? Is it something that we see all the time? No, not really. Uh, the consistencies that we really see as sort of necessary across all weight classes all ability levels are uh, local muscular endurance for grip strength and isometric strength those are the two consistent themes that we utilize regardless of whether we're talking about a world-class competitor or a white belt and they've only been on the mats for a week but outside of that we still are learning a lot about uh, about the sport and about how we can best serve our athletes Wow. I love having the Electrum
0: guys on. It's like, <laughs> I, I, like I said before we even rec- started recording, man, it's like, I feel like a, I've been doing jujitsu for a long time and strength and conditioning has always been something that like I've tried to do well, but I've had a lot of different coaches that kind of use the same nomenclature and the same explaining style, but you guys seem to be really doing your best. And that's what strikes me as different unique about you guys. You guys are tr- trying to do your best to make it relatable to the sport. And yeah, you're doing mostly jujitsu athletes. Do you find that like, Sometimes it's difficult to diagnose so, uh, some of the, like, things that are – how I word this? You pretty much answered this. Oh, man. I have I have a question in my head. Never mind. Danny, you go because, like, I have to think about my question now because I totally am thinking about everything you just said, and I just ruined my podcast question.
2: Wow. No, you're fine. Fantastic. You're fine. What, what struck me about what you just said is that jiu-jitsu is, like, so dynamic. Like, you even mentioned, depending on the type of opponent you're going against, your technique can change, your – uh, your leverage points can change. So, um, do you feel like jujitsu, it's, it's kind of more challenging than some of the other sports, um, to program for, for athletes?
1: It can be, um, you know, we do like to, to follow the 80, 20 rule as often as we can. Right. And, uh, it's sort of, you know, that, um, 20% of input or effort, that's going to get you the sort of 80% of results, right? The basics are the same for everyone. The basic principles of strength and conditioning are very simple. They're not sexy, so people don't talk about them all that often, but that's one of the reasons that I try to put so much educational content out onto to social media and to Instagram. Um, I think mastering the basics never goes away in strength training, and jiu-jitsu, in, in any other endeavor. And at the end of the day, any program that you're writing, whether it's for a jiu-jitsu athlete, whether it's for general population, whether it's uh, any other sport, they're going to look much more similar than they are different. And so we know that we can always uh, check those boxes and that we're going to be able to deliver results to anyone. Um, You know, the the same sort of squat, hinge, lunge, push, pull exercises uh, with smart programming uh, is going to wind up bringing us a long way. It's those margins that start to sort of make the difference between, uh, okay, a pretty good purple belt and a multiple time world champion That's where you're really going to see the evolution over the next 10, 20, 30 years. You know, I can say things like, okay, Major League Baseball pitchers on average have a stride length of 87 percent of their total body height and their shoulders can typically rotate internally rotate as they're throwing at 7000 degrees per second. I cannot say anything close to that for um, any sort of sweep pass submission that is typically utilized. One of the coolest things that the UFC Performance Institute has done over the last couple of years for MMA is establishing some of those uh, gender and weight class norms. Things like what is the average match time for uh, welterweight title fights? What is the most common submission in different weight classes? What is the most common method of injury? And we don't even really have a lot of data uh, for that. I've even tried digging through some of the IBJJF sites. information and it's it's minimal. Uh, one of the things that we we had started this process right before the, the quarantine unfortunately, um, but we're looking forward to, to getting it rolling again is to be able to start to collect some of that data. Can we establish norms by weight class by belt level uh, to be able to even talk about what are the most common submissions what are the most co- what's the average match time in IBJJF worlds? I have no idea and I don't think anyone else does either. The more information, the more data we have, the more informed we can be about some of those margins, right, that 20 percent that can make the difference between a bronze and a gold medal. And uh, we are, we feel a little bit of a personal responsibility to do that and are really looking forward to undertaking uh, at first some survey data that we can then publish. Uh, in particular, we're, uh, we're looking at a couple of my friends uh, in academia have picked up jujitsu as a hobby and are excited to uh, start to, to actually conduct some research. And uh, in, in addition to some of the things that we're going to be experimenting with in a more case study type of uh, scenario, like, are we really in our own weight room, in our own gym? I'm, I'm at electron performance headquarters right now. Uh, are we going to be you know, making sure that that's peer reviewed and published and everything? No, we're, we're doing some kind of real world experimentation as well. But we are very excited to try to start to collect uh, some of that data and bring jiu-jitsu into more of an objective, quantifiable uh, scenario so that we can start throwing around some of these numbers and talk about it in a more specific manner. Right now, it's a little bit nebulous and qualitative and even how we learn or acquire skill in jujitsu is extremely personal right now and individualized. That's never going to go away. But even right now, you are seeing a little bit of a meta being established in Nogi, in particular, uh, some of like Danaher's approaches or, or things that are drastically changing how the sport looks um and it's even diverging uh in terms of how you see nogi uh and um, mma grappling sort of evolving um and sooner rather than later we may actually start to be able to establish some of that but right now it's a little bit of a, a shot in the dark and j- even just bringing the basics to jiu-jitsu right now just bringing the basics to of strength and conditioning is a win and it, it is helping. Uh, and that's our our square one goal. And then from there we can really start to expand into some of the more exciting fringe stuff.
0: More or less, I'm glad you answered it because that was really what I was hoping. Like I, that was the question I wanted to ask. I know I sound like an idiot that babbled, but uh, that was that was definitely that was good that was what i wanted to ask and danny asked it better than i did i definitely like your whiteboard wednesday that you put on your social media i know you brought up that you're trying to put information out there whiteboard wednesday is very blunt and i love it literally (laughs) muscle confusion is bullshit that that made me laugh when i first saw it i was like man yeah he's really just telling you and i think some people need to hear it
1: like that yeah it um i don't love uh all the time that goes into making infographics um that can get a little bit tedious where uh, you know, my handwriting is pretty neat. I like drawing, and you know, if I have a whiteboard available for me, it's like, well, why not? Um, and I've I've gotten pretty good feedback there, so I definitely appreciate you guys enjoying that. Um, I have I have this long uh, sticky note on my desktop for a whole bunch of ones that I want to roll out, and uh, I'm working on a couple of them for next week. All right, nice. because it's just it's just funny, like like I feel like a lot of times
0: one of the one error that and I don't know if you know if it's an error, it's just that was probably the wrong word to use for it. But a lot of people like it's hard to, for a common person, even if they're an athlete to understand all the various different, you know, jargon you can use to describe how to work out and just telling people straight up, like, Hey, gaining muscles, hard, maintaining muscles, easy. Um, that's like, that's like helping us because I'm not a smart guy. I say it all the time on the show. I'm like, really, I got a potato in this head. So (laughs) just being able to be told, uh, an easy, an easy nomenclature how to see another word nomenclature, though, being able to get told easily how to do
1: things. It helps a lot. Yeah, you know, that's that's our job. Uh, And that is uh, kind of a constant challenge because I like jargon. I like that nomenclature. I like being able to express myself uh, in an articulate manner. But if I'm talking way over someone's head and they're simply not uh, they're not understanding that terminology, well, then I'm doing them a disservice. And I think in some ways, the um, the whiteboard Wednesdays can really help me be able to find better terminology for my audience. Um, it's uh, it's also a, a kind of chance for me to talk in absolutes, which is normally rare. Right. I we really, really try to stay away from uh, from ap, uh, from absolutes or black and white thinking because, again, strength training is no different from anything else. There's always gray. and. So often people ask me something and my response is, it depends. Um, Or I don't know. uh, And that's something that I don't think enough people say either. Mm -hmm.
0: When you were, um, I have a question for you personally. I saw that you uh, have a 635 pound block pull, which is insane. Um, And you mentioned that you were up to, what was it, 275 pounds powerlifting? Mm Mm-hmm. Were you competing in powerlifting or were you trying to do like strongman competitions or was it, uh, just like kind of personally, you enjoy powerlifting
1: both. Um, I love picking up heavy things, uh, you know, deadlifting, squatting, benching. Those are all my favorite types of movements to perform. Um, it's kind of the closest I think I can get to mindfulness or meditation. And, um, I did compete a couple times in like small meets, um, but nothing major um you know yes i'm strong but certainly nowhere near uh what some of these freaks are now uh, doing in powerlifting um and uh it's something that i've actually as i've lost weight cuz now i'm sitting low 230s uh, which is a significantly better body weight for me for jiu jitsu i also had a couple health markers that i wasn't thrilled with um at that weight and um, i've been able to maintain just about all my strength. Bench press uh, does tend to be more specific to body weight uh, versus some of the other big lifts uh, that we're typically performing. Um, so that's gone down a little bit, um, but uh, I'm looking forward uh, when we you know are really able to open our doors to hopefully pull in some really big weight this year. Uh, Sterner and I both have some some ambitious goals there for deadlifting. Uh, and you know, is improving my deadlift further going to make me any better at, at Jiu Jitsu? Eh, no, but uh, that's okay. I don't necessarily, uh, make all of my personal training decisions based on jujitsu. Um, because for me it is a little bit more of a lifestyle. I have competed in the past. I would like to, again, um, if, uh, if I was going to hop into competing in jiu-jitsu much more often and who knows if or when that's going to be the case in the next few years, then I would certainly change up some of my training and I wouldn't uh, program for any of our athletes the same way that I'm currently training. But, um, it's been fairly easy to, to kind of manage both. Okay. I noticed that, like, one thing
0: I love to study right now is nutrition. And uh, I, I, I get caught up watching so many different, like, I watch a lot of jujitsu fighters and, like, what they eat. And I also work with Natalia Chantri. I've mentioned on the show before. And then uh, I noticed, like, I watch these power lifters and what they eat. And man, it's like so much incredible food. And I, Danny's laughing because of some I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a challenge, but it's gonna be really, really hard. Uh, they, man, how my, how many calories at the height of your like time lifting and and gaining weight? How many calories were you eating per day?
1: I don't typically track, um, but I would say I was probably in the neighborhood of six thousand a day. Uh, whereas now I'm somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty-two to thirty-five hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, it was a lot. And, yeah. uh, I'll freely admit that at first, uh, when I, when I really wanted to get into powerlifting, I dirty bulked, you know, there was a lot of jelly beans and fried chicken and that was not necessarily <laughs> the best way to go about it.
0: Yeah. I, I, I hear you. I really love all that food too. I'm going to do a challenge <laughs> with Danny and I might, I might, uh, do it in California. I don't know who knows, who knows what I'm going to do, but I'm going to, um, eat 15,000 calories in a single day. I'm really going to try it because some of the power lifters eat that in a single day every day, and that's insane to me. But, uh, that's an off topic question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hand it back to Danny. I just wanted to know about like the powerlifting because I mean, you did powerlifting and you competed in it. And that's something that like, I'm very interested in too. I love lifting. So I'm just trying to get all the information, the personal information. out. That was a Jake
1: Watson question. That wasn't a public question.
2: Well,
1: uh, yeah. Good luck on that. Uh, I, I know I've crossed 10,000 before at a Brazilian steakhouse, but I'm not sure how much further I've, uh, I've gone than that in a single day or a single sitting. Um, you know, nutri- I do have a, a, um, a minor in nutrition for exercise and sport and nutrition is very similar to strength training. There are a million ways to skin a cat, right? There's so many different ways that you can program uh, so many different little variables, but at the end of the day, the basic principles are simple and in some ways kind of boring or not sexy. Uh, so much of it comes down to just energy balance, calories in calories out and macronutrient distribution. Um, that's far more important than even the food quality. Now of course food quality matters a lot, uh, but there are multiple nutritionists who like to prove a point to their classrooms or things like that of you know lost 50 60 pounds eating nothing but twinkies and oreos uh, over the course of a semester. That's absolutely possible. Is it easy? No. Uh do you feel like crap? Yeah. Um but it's possible. One of our uh, uh someone that we follow um on social media she has a really big platform. Uh, her name is Sohi Lee. Uh, She is uh, very much kind of the queen of moderation uh, in terms of her message and and, uh, what she really looks to educate in particular women on. Uh, But she first became popular because she won her bikini pro card uh, in competing in uh, physique uh, sports by uh, eating a Snickers bar every day during her prep. And she's very small. She weighs under 100 pounds. So that's actually a very large percentage of her daily uh, calories uh, in a situation like that. And it was successful. I mean, she felt terrible, but she was absolutely able to do that. That sounds sounds awful.
2: (laughs) So is nutrition something you guys want to incorporate into your business and kind of help people with that as well? I know you said you had the minor in nutrition. I don't know if you'd kind of do it yourself or if you'd look to bring someone else in. Um, But is that something you want to incorporate into into your work with your clients?
1: Absolutely. Uh, we can't separate the two, right? Uh, if we were going to sort of draw a Venn diagram, uh, we have to give eh, close to equal weight to, or, and even pr- potentially more weight to nutrition, training and recovery, right? We cannot separate They're they're all very much tied together. Uh, inherently, uh, we, you know, that the idea of like, you can't out train a shit diet is true. Um, yeah. you can try, but uh, those those are going to be so highly interrelated and uh, you, know, you are what you eat. So we absolutely do a lot uh, in terms of education, consultations. Sometimes we will do macronutrient templates or uh, aiding our fighters for uh, you know, weight cuts or hydration. Uh, we do have a couple projects in the works that we would like to expand into some meal templates. Uh, we also uh, collaborate with uh, Dr. Spencer Nadolski, who uh, was a D- high-level D1 wrestler himself and then is uh, known as the Doc Who Lifts. He's an obesity and lipidology specialist. Uh, so it's great to have uh, someone like that kind of in our corner to be able to help and, and consult. Uh, and that is definitely, you know, right now we don't have a lot of true like products for sale that uh, are nutrition focused. And that's definitely a next uh, big step for us. All right
2: so i kind of wanted to go back to the whiteboard wednesday stuff i don't know if this was one of those topics or if it was just uh, a, a different type of post that you made but you talked about reps and reserve um and how it's basically just the importance of doing that not going to failure too often and i feel like since i've been doing one of the electrum programs that's something that's like really helped me like i feel like i've been able to do the electrum strength sessions and then be able to do jiu-jitsu as well on the same day so is that something that you recommend i know we were talking about speaking in absolutes earlier, so I, know, I don't know if you'd recommend it across the board, but is that something, is that a general recommendation you have for jiu two athletes?
1: Short answer is it's the most common way that we program. Uh, long answer, uh, here we go. Let's dive into it. So it's very tempting as a coach or a lifter to want to turn everybody into power lifters, right? But yeah. jiu-jitsu athletes are not powerlifters. And uh, there's even a, ma- a massive difference between uh, how we'll approach total volume or total effort level for athletes versus some of our general population clients. Because we work with a lot of people who um, are not professional athletes, are not uh, involved in any um, you know, major sport or anything like that. And for someone like that, strength and conditioning is the cake, right, if we want to use an analogy of cake. Right? For uh, jiu-jitsu athletes, it's the icing. It's not the cake itself. Their time on the mats is the main focus. And what we're doing with them in the weight room is a complement, a supplement to that. And we have to make sure uh, there are two terms that that I really keep in mind all the time. The first is the minimum effective dose. What is the minimum amount of work that I can have you do to get the maximum results? If I can have the same or better results with you performing two sets versus 10, I'm going to have you do two. And the sort of flip side to that coin is the maximum recoverable volume. How much volume can you handle on a weekly or monthly basis combined, right? Because we can't separate those stressors. Stress is stress. And whether it's good stress or bad stress, it is cumulative, and our body's going to respond to that stress in the same um, specific or general manner. It's actually a, a concept known as general adaptation syndrome, uh, which is uh, something that I've posted on previously. And so we have to be keeping that in mind of, OK, what's the minimum and what's the maximum and how are we living within there for what is optimum or for what is ideal? And there isn't a black and white answer for that. It's different for everyone. Um, even for myself and Coach Sterner, we have very different uh, kind of lines in the sand for our minimum effective dose and our maximum recoverable volume. Um, I don't have quite the same volume tolerance that he does. Uh, so my training frequency reflects that. Um I consistently, every time I try to, to consistently strength train four days a week at the appropriate effort level, and we'll, we'll get to that with the repetitions in reserve, and an appropriate effort level to make progress, I start to have trouble recovering. And I, I see that consistently. Uh, so... Most of the time, I'm um, training at least you know strength training three days a week because that seems to be the kind of ideal uh, with how I like to program and how I like to train. That seems to be what's ideal for my body and and what will allow me to continue to train intelligently and make progress long term. Now, in terms of the the repetitions in reserve, um, we would consider that uh, a particular way to auto regulate our strength training now what the hell is that it sounds like a a weird term that you'd hear from a car mechanic right that simply means making decisions uh, for training based on an athlete's current physiological state how do you feel what is your current energy and fatigue level because that's really really important uh if i'm if i'm if you're if you just trained at comp class for three hours and your elbow's killing you because you got sandwich armbar And, uh, we're supposed to max out bench press today. It would be negligent and a a poor decision on my part to still have you max out on bench, right? We have to be able to have some flexibility with our icing to accommodate what's going on with the cake itself. And, uh, that's really why I got into auto regulation that was a, a my thesis in grad school was based on auto regulatory training uh, and that's something that we implement on a daily basis and there are a number of ways to do that um, I could go into some of that full some of the, my kind of full spiel on auto regulation if you guys would like uh, we do also have a, i um, released a, it's about 17 minutes long a recent intro to auto regulation uh, igtv and YouTube video um, so that's also a, a helpful supplement uh, to help understand some of these concepts Um, But again, simply, that means making decisions of training based on someone's current levels of energy and readiness. What are your current performance capabilities? Uh, I would see often, you know, so often in powerlifting, programs are based on a percentage of your one repetition max for squat, bench, deadlift. Well, that's great, except there's only one problem. Most of the time, we don't know your one RM if you're not a powerlifter, and we're not going to find out. It's not very important for general uh, population or BJJ athletes to be uh, constantly testing that or, or maxing out. Not that we never do that, uh, but it simply is apples and oranges and we're not trying to turn people into powerlifters. So, and if over the course of like eight, 12 weeks you get stronger, well then all of a sudden those percentages are no longer appropriate. So what's a very simple way that we can account? For all of those variables that impact how you're feeling or your current performance capabilities, we could never control all of them. We we can't control life. There are so many different variables that will impact how we're feeling. Even something like I'll I'll use the example sometimes of like, okay, if you break up with your significant other and then you go try to deadlift max the next day, it's not going to go well. It just isn't. That's a form of stress that is going to negatively impact your physical performance, even though it's mental stress. And I can't control for all of those variables with, with all of my athletes. I can't even control them in my own life. But if there's a very simple way that we can account for them and roll with the punches and have flexibility if the cake gets burned or if the cake is underdone to be able to still get an effective training session. And the simplest way that we typically do that is through the rating of perceived exertion or repetitions in reserve scale. There are a million different ways that we can uh, perform auto regulatory training. My favorite way is to do it based off of velocity or how fast the bar is moving, because that's a very objective measure that can help me make some of those decisions. If bar speed is down, well, then fatigue is up uh, and that can really help us uh, have that understanding. But athletes are very in tune with their bodies already. And even though it's subjective, um, you know, if an athlete comes in and tells me I feel like shit, then I'm going to honor that feedback. And uh, the RPE RIR scale is typically the simplest way that we can do that. Sorry, there's a phone call for a second. Um, And we'll dive a little bit into the physiology here of why that repetitions in reserve matters so much. Um, So we're gonna put our muscle physiologist hat on for a second. And we know, uh, and there's a lot of, uh, luckily a lot of research on uh, muscle hypertrophy or, or strength mechanisms, we know that this, the closer we are to failure, the more effective those repetitions are. We'll off, they're often referred to in literature as either stimulating reps or hypertrophic reps, right? So if we're looking at uh, a set of 20, reps 19 and 20, assuming that we're going close to failure, right? Because if we do a set of 20 with weights where we could do 100 reps, well, that isn't going to do jack. Right? I use the example I could do curls with my cell phone literally all day. All day. Do you think my bicep's going to get any bigger or stronger? Probably not. Probably not. Right. It's not enough of a minimum effective dose. It falls short of the stimulus that we need to be able to actually improve or get better. Uh, So we know that, uh, you know, so if we're selecting an appropriate weight and that set of 20 is at or close to failure, we know that those last few reps are going to be more stimulating, more effective than reps one, two and three. That's not to say that reps one two and three have zero impact but uh we know that those those reps closer to failure are what are truly driving adaptation what's truly causing our body to change but training to total failure is significantly more fatiguing and we're concerned about recovery and making sure that we can continue to to train on and off the mats and The closer we get to failure, the more technique starts to break down and the greater risk of injury we have. So if we can stay just short of failure, a couple of reps in the tank, but still in the ballpark, still in the neighborhood, across all people, across all rep ranges, across all exercises, we know that that is going to deliver results. And the easiest way for us to be able to quantify, well, how close am I to failure is to actually establish that and learn it as a skill. The most common question that you hear in our weight room is, "How do you feel?" The second most common question that you hear is, "How many more reps could you have done?" We ask that constantly at the end of our client sets, and that's a skill. It takes time to learn. Autoregulation is a skill, even though we are, yes, inherently in tune with our body. And uh, nobody on planet Earth can go like, "Oh, I had 11 reps left." That's that's way too hard to actually measure. <laughs> so what we'll typically use because uh, the actual explanation for this is a little bit outside of this. This would take me like a long time to explain. And I know I'm already taking a little while on this tangent, but we know that the last five ish repetitions in a set are where we're getting full muscle recruitment, full activation of all of the working muscle fibers and uh, where we're really getting those effective repetitions. So as long as we have fewer than five repetitions in reserve, we know that we're getting at least a couple of those effective reps. And so our general rule of thumb is being somewhere in the neighborhood of zero to three repetitions in reserve. So selecting a weight, let's say you're doing a set of 10 selecting a weight where you could have done 12 to 13. If you were absolutely going to failure, we know without a shadow of a doubt that sets taken to that level of effort will improve your hypertrophy meaning your muscle mass and size and your strength now there is a a variable kind of floating around in the background of velocity but that's uh, a little bit of a, a different question or different concept in and of itself we know that those sets are going to get results for everyone because that's simply how our muscle physiology works whether again it's a black belt world champion or a white belt who's never touched a dumbbell before and That's we found over and over the simplest and most effective way for us to be able to account for all of these different variables that we can't control and to be able to auto regulate and individualize for both our in-person clients and our on uh, online clients, because programming for online is significantly harder. Everybody wants to be an online coach. And then you realize, oh, wow, I'm never actually seeing these people. In some cases, I don't even know what they look like if they don't have a profile picture up or if (laughs) I don't follow them on Instagram and trying to be able to. Program uh, for someone like that is really, really challenging. There's only so much information that I can glean from an assessment. But if I can get uh, this concept across and use a very simple one through 10 scale, everybody can count to 10, then that's something that allows us to really be able to individualize and cater our training each person. Everybody's a special snowflake. No uh no two people are the same and their programming even though it should look similar is not exactly the same. And that consistently allows us uh to to see safe and long-term continued progress. Uh
0: what do you think is the important of having a partner in the weight room? If you're lifting with <laughs> online programs like let's say i go by myself, um do you think that there is a benefit to having Someone there with you, like in case you need a a
1: spot or something like that,
0: or do you think you can get the same results by yourself?
1: I think a lot of that depends on uh, the experience level of the particular athlete and their own kind of uh, personality. There are some people who do prefer to train uh, alone who, you know, can get a little bit more amped up, a little bit more motivated if they're by themselves, and that's great. in general, I think we can probably make the statement that having training partners is better. Um, there is a lot of sports psychology research that shows that in in general, people do better uh, um, adhering to fitness regimens if it's in groups. Uh, that's why you know, group training and group fitness classes are so popular. And of course, from a safety standpoint, being able to have a spotter or to have someone be able to help you Um, Someone to also motivate you and kind of keep you pushing. Uh, And in the case of someone who's very experienced, uh, you know, being able to have someone there, uh, you know, nothing replaces a coach's eye to be able to look and watch and see how something looks from the outside. We're also pretty big on filming yourself to be able to get that kind of feedback. Uh, You know, if I'm training with someone off the street who's never met me before, it may not give me a ton of benefit. But, you know, Coach Sterner has been watching me train for 10 years uh, and knows how my body moves, and we can, of course, help each other and, and get very effective workouts when we're training together.
0: Okay.
2: So, I wanted to ask you something about the auto regulation piece again. Um, so, do you feel like you mentioned that jujitsu is the cake and strength and conditioning is more the icing? In, in an ideal world, do you feel like it's better to do your jiu-jitsu training? If you're doing two sessions in the same day, would you say it's better to do the jujitsu training first so that you can base the supplementary work around how you feel after G2 or does that not matter at all
1: that's a great question um as always it depends and we're looking to uh, to individualize that training schedule um so i'll give you a couple examples uh, but uh the the tldr um is i would say in general we typically want to go from what's most fatiguing to what's least fatiguing That's normally the kind of ideal order for training. Now, competing or sport doesn't always work that way, right? So sometimes it is also important to train in a fatigued state. But if we're looking at, you know, things, uh, if we were doing an order of sprinting versus strength training, that would be a pretty clear answer if we'd want to sprint first. Because per second, sprinting is more fatiguing. Uh, or power-based work is going to be more fatiguing. That's going to, the, the whole idea of power is that you can only produce it for a few seconds. That's velocity, uh, force times velocity. So things that are very power or rate of fo- force development focused are going to be more fatiguing uh, than something like going for a two-mile jog. Now, is a jiu-jitsu training, like is comp class at most jujitsu schools harder truly than a strength training session yes right so don't get the the total session duration or total effort level confused because by second very heavy back squats are more fatiguing than jujitsu. Yeah. so in general right but we have to be careful with that in general we can make the statement that it's probably a little bit better if you had to choose or if you had your choice of strength training first but some athletes uh, find that that fatigues them a little bit too much for the cake Right? And again, the cake is always the focus. So sometimes uh, it winds up being the opposite. There's also nothing that says that our effort level has to be the same in every strength training session. One of the ways that we can auto-regulate is, let's say, uh, you're strength training three days a week. We can have one day that is a moderate effort le- effort level. We can have one day that's even light, easy, maybe corrective work or individualized uh, prehab work for nagging injuries or something that that athlete needs to work on in particular. And one very heavy uh, or very power-based day. Well, let's say uh, competition uh, class is Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, just as an example, right? And we know that the athlete has the weekend uh, to be able to rest and recover. Well, then maybe they can have that moderate effort day after comp class on Monday, on Wednesday, their rest day, maybe they can have that max effort uh, training day and then a lighter, uh, easier day in the weight room as fatigue is accumulating on Thursday and Friday to be able to, again, ideally put that that cake together, getting the ingredients right to have a cake that's not overdone, not underdone and the right amount of icing for you know, what is optimum, what is ideal for that athlete's schedule. Well, let's say that that's not the actual schedule that they're uh, that they're following and com classes at different times or different days. Then the answer uh, would be different. We're uh, we're basing it off of you know, all of these uh, other different variables. And it is a lot of uh, balls to juggle. But the beauty is that if we understand those basics, we can fit not just the training, but fit the schedule and the overall effort level. We can auto regulate all of that for the individual for what's going to help them make long-term progress and stay healthy. The best, uh, what is the, the best, uh, something about being available is the best, uh, Oh yeah. The best ability is availability. Yes. Right? If an perfect, then all of this goes out the window. Um, uh, and so, um, you know, we're really looking to, to be able to modify all of those things.
2: Yeah, I typically do. If I, lift and train jiu-jitsu in the same day I usually do the lifting in the morning like uh, either first thing in the morning or like a little bit after breakfast and then I'll do jiu-jitsu at night and it usually I usually feel especially since I've been doing the Electrum uh bodyweight program I felt great at night so I haven't felt like additional fatigue from that but Jake I know you were doing some like heavy lifting in the morning um I don't know if you're still doing that but did you do that leading up to this tournament? No, coast? I've been
0: I've been doing um, jujitsu training in the morning and then lifting in the afternoon and then training again at night is what I have been doing. But uh, I haven't uh, ever thought about it. I've always thought that like as long as I'm not doing it late at night, then I'm probably fine because for me it's very hard to wind down. I'm a very I'm a very like once I'm awake, and my whole day is going and I'm just like full of energy the whole day. And if I if I weight lift at night and do like something max effort or even somewhat effort and I'm lifting. I can't go to bed until like 11 p.m. and then I have to wake up the next day early. So I was lifting early in the morning, like I was lifting at like 7 a.m. in the morning for Monday, Wednesday, Friday for a long time. But uh, I just haven't been doing that lately. Would you say personally, I don't know if answering this personally or is there a quantifiable answer, is it better to lift in the morning or the afternoon?
1: So that's a great question Um, and I'll answer that in a second. But for both of you guys, this is a great example of auto-regulation. You are auto-regulating your schedule and your training, and you didn't even know it. Right? One of the, the things that uh, is, I guess, the beauty of auto-regulation is that every single program or every single training schedule utilizes it, whether you're fully aware of it or not. And even these efforts to find what is ideal for my schedule, for my training, for my lifestyle is uh the most common way of auto-regulating pre-session, right, making these decisions before we ever train. A lot of the examples that we were talking about within the, the RPE or RIR scale are within session, right, or even within set. So there are a number of ways that we can apply that concept. Um, in terms of your specific question, Jake the answer would be what feels best for you and something that i would maybe recommend is uh keeping a log or a journal where all you even have to do some people do like a one through ten scale um of just your sort of energy or readiness or how you felt uh and some people will even use like smiley face no expression frowny face type of thing for trial and error of messing around with some of those different variables does strength training in the morning help me feel at my best uh, am i Am I sleeping well? Um, You can even track your resting heart rate uh, in the mornings when you wake up because that's a very sensitive measure of your current neurological state, your current level of energy and readiness. Um, Typically, a sustained uh, increase in resting heart rate starts to be a little bit of a red flag or a warning sign that maybe fatigue is too high and maybe volume is too high or some variable is off within our training and we need to, to take a little bit of a step back and aid in recovery if we're looking at it from a general physiology standpoint, right, because take home point is always what's going to work best for you individually, you as an athlete, you as a competitor. In general, um, most men, we can make this kind of general statement, most men tend to perform best in strength training in the the, around the mid afternoon. Um, And some of that has to do with uh sleep wake cycle some of it has to do with diurnal diurnal hormone variables so uh testosterone in particular is a diurnal hormone and many of the hormones in our body function this way meaning it has two peaks because the resting our resting level of testosterone changes over time and there are a number of variables that can impact that sleep has a huge impact on testosterone Uh, if you have a poor night's sleep your testosterone can tank by up to 30 percent the next day Um, even food uh will or feeding or eating will have an impact on not just insulin everybody knows about the kind of insulin spike that occurs from consuming food but uh even testosterone or growth hormone will be impacted by by what you're eating but even just naturally based on daylight or our natural sleep wake cycles we have two different peaks uh and for most men the second peak is larger and that will occur anywhere from like 3 to 5 p.m. depending on the person um and I know for myself personally, that's when I feel the best. And that's when I tend to train the best and perform the best. If we're looking at maximal strength, right? And we also don't want to go too far to say, oh, well, we're going making, to be making all of our training decisions based on hormones. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. And in fact, we've seen that that post-exercise hormone spike doesn't really do a whole lot. Um, it's not like it's driving uh, adaptation or directly uh, improving your hypertrophy or strength levels. But... Um, many people will find that if they are training during one of those peaks, uh, and the the other peak is normally like an hour or two after you wake up, after uh, melatonin starts to kind of do its thing. So, um, at the end of the day, we have to make the, the decision based on our own schedule or how we feel. But many men do find that they have their best results somewhere like mid to late morning or mid to late afternoon. For women, their spike is typically earlier in the day. Um, so, anecdotally, right, this is just anecdote or, or feedback from clients, um, we do tend to have more women who feel that they're at their strongest or they're at their best if they're training mid to late morning. Um, so, it's interesting that we can see some of those differences, although we really overall do train men and women basically the same uh, because muscle's muscle, right? Um, But for you, Jake, that might be something to really start to pay attention to uh, and to just kind of record a a little bit of a journal um, and just through trial and error and your own feedback that can answer itself. I certainly don't think that what you're doing right now is bad. Right. It's a good schedule. It's obviously working for you, uh, especially if you're continuing to make progress and getting stronger and, and feeling good on the mats and feeling like you can recover. But as soon as you start to to see those red flags of just man, I'm beat up, I'm down in the dumps, this does not seem to be working. Well, then we have to look at some of those variables and and see if we can make a few tweaks uh, to help it be more optimum for your preferences and your lifestyle.
0: So if if my girlfriend were to break up with me, I would want to lift in the afternoon, probably. <laughs> yeah,
1: for sure.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: I thought, man, I thought about that. I was like, man, what if, what if my my girlfriend doesn't exist, by the way? What if my girlfriend <laughs> uh, broke up with me? I'd have to like hit my deadlift max in the afternoon rather than in the morning. I am gonna do that. That's gonna be the first thing I do, coming back from third coast is I'm gonna um, cause I already have a bunch of stuff I gotta work on, like I said before. But I'm definitely gonna start keeping a a note of how I feel. And another thing I've always struggled with is sleep. I don't know if Danny can relate to this or not, but I have just had such a hard time sleeping ever since I was even in grade school. And I don't, I never knew why it's because I'm so highly wound. I have to take a tea. I I drink chamomile tea with like bee propolis in it before I go to bed. I'm like one of those guys. It's like a tea regimen.
1: That can be challenging. Um, You know, I I, uh, have a blog post on our site uh, talking about the top five uh, variables for recovery. The Mm -hmm. top five variables for recovery are sleep and nutrition. That's it. There's only two.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for the last three. <laughs> like, why is he pausing? <laughs>
1: Massage, sauna, hot, cold. And we can talk about all those things, uh, you know, and go down that rabbit hole at some point if we want to, or maybe a future episode or something. But none of that is going to make any difference if we're not sleeping, right? You'll yeah. see people drop in hundreds of dollars on supplements and uh, a weekly massage and physio and c- cryotherapy and all this other different stuff. And if we're not sleeping, none of it matters. And sleep can be a challenge, both because of you know, phys- uh, being wound tight or being able, having to wind down. I do typically find that if I strength train too late uh, in the day, that it does make it more challenging for me to to fall asleep. I'm kind of more wound up and it takes me a little bit of time to, you know, like my wife just falls asleep, boom, drop of a hat. For me, it, it takes considerably longer than that. Um, and that's also something to, to be aware of. Some people, they strength train later in the night and it just conks them right out. Others, Oh, now I'm awake. Now I'm restless. Um, quality sleep can be, uh, hard to come by. Some people, uh, find a a big benefit with melatonin, uh, or other things like that, avoiding blue light. I mean, of course there are some recommendations that we can kind of make there, but a lot of it is sort of is just general lifestyle or, uh, psychology based. Uh, I used to really struggle to sleep. Um, and I found a few things that, that work well for me, whether it's reading a book, whether it's making sure that I shut my light off, uh, cause otherwise I'll just stay there with it on until 2 AM and I'm, I'm still awake, you know, avoiding some of the blue light. Um, some people, uh, find that if they eat too late in the day, uh, that that can sometimes have an effect. Some people find that it helps them sleep, uh, because they don't wake up in the middle of the night hungry. Um, meal timing really doesn't matter. Any of the things that you've, I, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. It does matter. But any of the things that you've heard about, Oh, no carbs after 6 PM, or you're wasting calories, uh, eating late at night. None of that is true. Uh, if you want to eat once a day and you're hitting your calories fine, if you want to eat six times a day, uh, go ahead. But all of these things can, uh, can have an impact on, on sleep and rest and recovery.
0: Wow. That is very, awesome. I'm very interested <laughs> in what you just said there about, so if I eat, like, let's say I'm crazy, and my stomach is gigantic, and I'm actually able to sit there and eat 4,000 calories in a day, I cannot eat the rest of the day, and I'll still hit the calorie marker?
1: If you need 4,000 calories to maintain your body weight, or whatever your particular goals are, then yeah. Wow. Now, Is that necessarily optimum for an athlete? Probably not. Yeah. Um, their Meal timing matters a little bit for, you know, competition or or challenging training sessions. Um, But especially for our general population clients or any of our uh, clients where weight loss is a goal, um, it's the total energy balance that matters. It's not the meal timing. It's not the meal frequency. Any of those ideas around 5, 10 years ago, we were seeing some literature coming out showing, oh, six meals a day will stoke the metabolic fire and and keep you burning more calories and is more effective. and, And that simply isn't true. It's calories in, calories out. If you're in a surplus, you'll gain weight. If you're in a deficit, you will lose weight. Whether you're grazing all day and eating twelve tiny meals, or you're gorging yourself once or twice, um, that really has uh, has no bearing on your your total uh, energy balance or or weight management. Uh, we do typically recommend that uh, our athletes um, eat sometime around their their training, but even a lot of the most up to date research looking at like protein uh, uh, timing and muscle protein synthesis or things like that, it doesn't really seem to matter whether it's Pre-training, mid-training or post-training, that whole idea of like an anabolic window where you only have 30 seconds after your strength training session, you have to chug your protein shake <laughs> simply isn't true. Uh, we have hours at, on, at which, you know, we're kind of in an upregulated and sensitized state. Um, but even many of our jiu-jitsu athletes don't like eating before training. I don't. Um, I don't eat before I train jiu-jitsu. I get nauseous if I do. Um, and it even downregulates my appetite afterwards where I have to remind myself to eat. But strength training, um, sometimes I'll even eat during my session. Uh, so that it also can matter based on what you're actually doing, um, but yeah, big biggest take home there, just like strength training or a schedule for training, your schedule for eating and feeding yourself is all based on personal preference and lifestyle and what you can adhere to, what fits you best. There isn't every diet you've ever heard of works. They all work, every single one of them. They're just inducing a deficit or a surplus in different ways. So if you look at something like intermittent fasting, that's time-restricted feeding. If you're looking at something like ketogenesis, that's macronutrient-restricted, so it's no carbs. Uh, by the way, don't necessarily recommend that for a athlete. These are just examples, right, yeah, of no. how it's just going about the same concept in different ways, and none of them are inherently superior or inferior.
0: Okay. I love talking about food, man. <laughs> yeah. food is the uh, food is like you start talking about food i'm I'm listening
2: so i want to get into one more like common fallacy in in fitness world and uh we touched on it a little bit in episode four with uh, with alex sterner um we talked about the the muscle imbalances and how that's not necessarily like like people shouldn't strive to achieve like this perfect balance um but i had a little bit of a more specific question so if you're doing, like, a unilateral, like, leg exercise and you're – let's say your right leg is, like, way stronger than your left leg, should you do more reps? Like, like let's say you can do more reps with having three in reserve with your right leg than you can with your left leg. Is it okay to to do that or are you striving for balance and just accepting that you're not going to be balanced, if that makes sense?
1: So in the interest of perfectionism, right, we do want to try to move as symmetrically as possible and to, to, move, to master uh, – Things on you know both sides of our bodies, but and we later we'll get into some sport specific examples. But imbalances are completely normal. Everyone has them, mm-hmm. right? and it's only in the weight room where all of a sudden we get so obsessed with this symmetry or even thinking that it's possible. It's not. It's just not. Um, we have a dominant. We're all left-handed or right-handed, right? Even the idea of true um, uh, what's the term for? ambidextrous. Yes, thank you. Wow. can't believe I I blanked on that. Even the the concept of uh, being ambidextrous is even challenged um, in academic circles. We're not 100% sure if it's actually possible or not uh, to be truly defined as ambidextrous. We all have a dominant, and everybody knows if they're left-handed or right-handed, right? And there is an evolutionary advantage to that. There's a reason, right? Nothing's by accident with how our bodies have evolved. At first, uh, mutations uh, you know, within natural selection are, uh, are accidents. But then if it gives us uh, greater fitness and the ability to pass on that trait, then it's going to we're going to see it over and over again. So we are handed. Right. We're left or right handed. So there is absolutely an advantage to being able to master tasks on one side of your body. Uh, I'll challenge both of you guys uh, later today. Eat with your off hand. And brush your teeth with your off hand yeah see how that goes right it's weird it's challenging <laughs> I don't to <wanna> do that. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: everyone is aware that we are also left-legged or right-legged we have a dominant lower body limb as well that does things just a little bit better and that is okay there's nothing wrong with that and even people assume oh jiu-jitsu is is super i'm i must be symmetrical because jiu-jitsu uh we perform tasks on both sides of the body and doing all sorts of pushing and pulling oh really because Uh, just about everybody only plays guard on one side, has certain sweeps, certain passes that they prefer on one side versus the other. Uh, I play half guard deep half on only my right side. I only play single leg X on the left. Now, am I going to try to, to improve that over time? Yes, because I'm not very good at jujitsu and I want to be able to be more symmetrical, uh, but never going to really get there. And that's okay. There are absolutely tendencies, uh, that we will kind of ingrain or go to over and over again. And that's true in any sport or any task. The idea that being asymmetrical is inherently bad is also flawed. Let's use the example again of baseball. Um, I'm left-handed. I'm also left-legged. So the left side of my body just behaves a little bit better. Uh, And so uh, I wasn't a switch hitter. I never threw with my right hand. I practiced that same skill over and over and over again. Hundreds of thousands of swings and throws from the left side only. And if we look at someone like, you know, Cy Young award-winning MVP type uh, level baseball player, they are doing the same thing. Maybe for them millions of times now practicing that same skill only on one side of their body. That's an advantage. That's a good thing for their sport, for their specific task. And Symmetry is not applicable. It is an inherently asymmetrical sport. And almost every sport is. So let's look at what we would assume to be the most symmetrical sport, which is probably sprinting, right? Sprinting is probably about as symmetrical as it's going to get because we're going in a straight line, right? It's almost all sagittal plane, uh, forward and back, north, south. And we would assume that sprinters are some of the most symmetrical athletes on earth, and they are. Yet we still see in elite world-class sprinters, a 10 to 15% discrepancy in their extension, uh, hip extension versus hip extension strength on one leg versus the other. And that's about as close as we can get still 10 to 15%. I've even uh, used bilateral force plates before to see the the difference in force production uh, from one leg versus the other. And in grad school, I was at 60, 40. I've been able to narrow that gap a little bit, but that's, that's pretty normal. There is actually one sport that gets really, really close to symmetry, and that's actually rock climbing. Uh, interestingly enough, um, because you're simply forced uh, to perform certain tasks on both sides. You can't err on one or the other because the rock face is determining what your the, the the movements that you're performing, not your own body or your own preferences., um, and that's actually something that we've uh, myself, my wife, uh, sterner, his girlfriend have picked up over the last year or so. Because uh, it's fun and there are actually a lot of overlaps uh, with uh, jiu-jitsu in terms of grip uh, or some of the challenges of fighting a wall and fighting your fear of heights as opposed to fighting a competitor. <laughs> uh, but even even rock climbing is never truly getting to symmetry. And if asymmetry is going to help us better perform that specific task, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And uh, I'm not trying to turn my uh, my athletes or my general population clients into completely symmetrical bodybuilders. And even if you look at bodybuilders, they're not completely symmetrical. Even the very uh, the very best are going to have some asymmetries from one side of the body to the other. There are times where we're looking to shrink that gap, where we're looking to try to to move as symmetrically as possible. And symmetry doesn't just mean left to right. Symmetry also means back to front, so we can even give a couple specific examples there with jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu is very anterior chain dominant, very front side of the body dominant, especially playing guard. It's impossible to be a good guard player without a strong core. It's going to constantly force you to engage your abdominal wall, hip flexion. You know, being able to a lot of top guard players feel like a gargoyle, right? They feel like a statue. Their, Their isometric strength is so good. Their elbows are just glued to their hips. You can't separate them there. Um, but then jujitsu does not, uh, consistently, uh, reach kind of end range or full hip extension like we see, uh, in many other sports, oftentimes the legs, especially the knees and hips are bent. Uh, but then sometimes we see it necessary for things like finishing a takedown, applying breaking power to a knee bar or an arm bar. And so while we don't ignore anterior chain exercises, uh, in the weight room, we're oftentimes looking to uh, train the backside of the body, the posterior chain, with uh, focusing on glutes, hamstrings, back, pulling exercises to be able to offset some of those asymmetries that we see in our sport. Is it a bad thing that the that the sport is anterior chain dominant? No, no. Uh, but our, we're trying to get specific there with what are the strengths and weaknesses of the individual athlete, and what's the needs analysis of the sport. And every sport is asymmetrical, so we can take that into account, we can, uh, look to even some of those things out, but we know we're never going to get there because the hours and hours and hours that we're spending on the mats are never going to completely be offset by, you know, an hour or two or three at most in the weight room per week. And that's okay. It's nothing to to lose sleep over. All right.
2: That was pretty we... much all the questions yeah. that I had. <laughs> I was going to ask you, Jake, if you had any more.
0: <laughs> well, every time, like, Man, I feel like my brain needs a cigarette after every time we have like Alex or either of the Alexes from Electric Performance on the show. I feel like uh, I just learn a lot, man. I'm ho- I really I truly believe in one of the things with OpenGarcats that is so awesome is we're trying to educate and provide people with information that is gonna be helpful to the community. If people are listening to this right now, I hope you guys have gained something because I gained a lot. Like I really am at a point in my career where I'm really trying to round out Exactly what I need. And one of the things I've always needed is strength. And if you're an athlete out there that needs like guidance or wants guidance from the best people in the game, election performance is the place to go 100%.
2: And hopefully, uh, as we learn more and continue to follow all your social media and, and do your programs, we can ask better questions too. To oh, for sure. Even more.
0: <laughs> I'm going to be looking at Whiteboard Wednesday every Wednesday. I literally turn my post notifications on. I, I followed you during the episode and turned my post notifications on on my account because I was just watching on the Open Guardcast Insta. And I was like, why am I not following them on mine? So now I'm going to be ready for your next uh, Gordon Ramsay esque advice on Whiteboard Wednesday. Well, since I know you're waiting, I, I guarantee I'll get you one out uh, next week. Yes. All right. Well, hey, where can people uh, where can people follow you? Where and I know you just guys. Actually, one more thing. You just had election performance. Uh, you guys are building it right now. Is it done?
1: That's right. Yes, it is. Um, we uh, our office is very messy, so I'm not going to show you that right now. We've got a trash <laughs> mountain one of the corners. Cannot believe how much cardboard we currently have, but uh, the gym space is oh, is finished, uh, flooring is down, equipment is all set up, and uh, about, when was it, a few years ago, I think it was seven or eight years ago, uh, Sterner and I, one late night, kind of shook hands and said, okay, within 10 years, we're going to have our own gym. And so we're ahead of schedule. Uh, and this has been, uh, you know, the biggest uh, end goal for us uh, from the very start. And we're really, really excited to to get Election Performance uh, headquarters up and running and, um, you know, really open. And and uh, that's really going to help us take the next step.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's I'm so happy for you guys. You guys definitely deserve it. Um, I'm definitely going to come down whenever, you know, whenever it's cool to travel again and people are looking at you weird. Uh, right. I'm definitely yeah. going to come down i'm definitely gonna do a training session with you guys because i am i'm excited for you guys i'm excited for the future of open guard cast x
1: election performance open <laughs> guard
0: performance <Not> I, <laughs>
1: I'm to, uh, to have you guys and hopefully we can uh, we can get you down here sooner rather than later
0: yeah no i'm You're definitely awesome. i got stuff to do man i got tournaments to go to and i, I actually uh, i just got my gi done today i got you guys' patch on my Ghee. so whew. right awesome. that's what's awesome. up all right well uh, this has been amazing. You guys can follow Alex, uh, on Instagram. He has so much amazing information there. Follow Electrum performance. Remember that we at the open guard cast have a discount code open guardcast 25. If you guys are looking so. to get some knowledge and stop being, uh, bad in the weight room and start being good in the weight room, <laughs> you can use our discount code 25%. That's probably not the right way to put it, but you get it. I'm excited right now. So, uh, Danny, if there's anybody else you want to shout out,
2: yeah, yeah, just uh, Agro Brand, uh, Marcio Andre Jiu-Jitsu, uh, high-tier photography. I think that's it for me.
0: Yep. shout out to Matakaba BJJ, Break New Ground. Shout-outs to Alex Sterner, Alex Bryce, Electrum Performance, all the athletes that are training right now who are doing amazing things in their own regard. Uh, we have some tournaments coming up that I know Gustavo is going to be competing here in Third Coast Grappling, and he's an amazing competitor that trains Electrum. And, you know, uh, bigger than anything right now, I want to say that it's a huge honor for me to compete, but we're also at the open guard cast. We know that there's a lot going on in the United States and in the world right now. There's a lot of people who can't even leave their, their homes still. I think in New York, there's, uh, people who can't go to their gyms. Gyms are shutting down right now. I think it's very important that, uh, those who are able to compete are you know, go out there and, and put on a show and really feel blessed because I feel very blessed to be able to do what I can do right now. And I know that there's people who can't do it. So, uh, yeah, just know that uh, Danny and I, our hearts are with you guys, and uh, hopefully this is over soon.
2: Yeah, definitely make sure you check out Jake on Third Coast Grappling. It's June 6th, so this will come out before that. Uh, we're recording on the 4th, and then he'll be competing the following weekend in uh, Jitsking. In, is it in Miami, Florida?
0: No. No, it's in Lakeland. I don't even know where Lakeland, that is. Lakeland, Florida. Not nearly <laughs> as cool. <laughs> yeah. People are less Somewhere orange, in Florida. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, Danny, that was episode what? Take us out
2: Episode here. 24. So thanks, everyone, for listening. That was Alex Bryce from Electrum Performance, episode 24 of the Open Guardcast. And we hope to record another episode soon. Thanks.